I know what you're thinking. Ugh, another ad spot. Where's that fast forward button? But I'm not here to sell you anything. No promo codes. First, introductions. Hi, I'm Winston from HubSpot. Yes, the company that makes marketing, sales, and service software. And also happens to make this show. Later in the episode, we'll hear from one of HubSpot's customers that's helping people travel the world inside an iconic silver bullet. Learn more about how HubSpot can help you grow your business at HubSpot.com slash customer love. <laughs> okay. We talk a lot about growth on this show. And yes, I know, I know, Megan, it's called The Growth Show. And you know what? You couldn't be more right. But as we explore how folks are growing a business, an idea, or a movement, I feel like there's something we tend to miss along the way. Many of our guests are first-time founders. And as the business starts to grow, they're hyper-focused on all the right areas. Customer acquisition, hiring, word-of-mouth marketing. It's all new and exciting. But what about when the lights turn off at night in the office? When you're back at home, coming down from riding that day's high, how does success in business bleed into a founder's personal life? Ryan Harms is the toast of Oregon. He and his friends founded Union Wine Company, and you probably know them best from a little innovation that changed everything, wine in a can. The company grew like crazy, but just as things were going well for Ryan and the business, his personal life, with his wife and children, was falling apart. Ryan gets really honest in this interview, and he shares the lessons he's learned from the mistakes he's made in balancing business growth with personal growth. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Here's what I hear. I hear that Oregon wine is not California wine, and that there may be some battle lines that get drawn there. So I'm wondering, out of your perspective, how important is it to you that you make wine from Oregon, not California? I think the thing I loved when I came to Oregon in the late 90s was a small industry, super collegial. And there was certainly some of it where you were competing against California. And California was the behemoth. Um, right. And we, I think as the industry here has grown up, and Pinot Noir in particular has become such a important varietal to Oregon, but then also Pinot Noir is so popular across the U.S., I think that becomes kind of the dividing line a little bit where oh, interesting. Oregon's going to be have a little more freshness, uh, vibrancy, acidity ultimately is what would underlie some of that. Mm -hmm. And I think also like kind of fresh berry fruits. Hmm. And I think Pinot from Oregon can really taste like some of those other agricultural crops that we grow here uh, oh, that in makes Oregon. sense. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the decision that you made to uh, start to produce wine in a can. How did you come up with that idea? So I think like any good entrepreneur, you start to solve problems that you're having. And in our company, you know, we'd been, we started in 2005. We've been making wine and bottles kind of the old fashioned way for a long time. And we'd go out and do all these great activities that Oregon has to offer us from backcountry skiing to the yeah. beautiful beaches. And wine was never part of those stories. And 
Hmm. And I'd always tease them, like, I never hear about, like, the epic powder day. Like, I always feel like I hear the travails of resupplying the hut system with alcohol. Like, that's the stories that you tell me. And when you tell me those stories, wine's never part of it. And so we talked about Tetra Packs. We've talked about bag in the box through the years. And we started to pay attention to what the Coppola family was doing with the Sophia Minis, the little sparkling cans. And Mm -hmm. I, I think we just realized, like, cans could be a really interesting opportunity for us. I think you also had a convergence at that time where we saw more and more small breweries that we were all fans of going to cans. And and so there was small scale canning equipment. So some of it was actually having the technology and the equipment available to be able to trial this and actually experiment with it. And right. then the other part that kind of came home, this kind of trifecta, I think, of things was uh, some rebranding that we were doing and some new marketing initiatives. And the can felt like a really great way to talk about Underwood's personality and not taking yourself too seriously. You can't stick your nose in a can. I guess you could swirl a can, but you can't really see what you're doing. You know, there's no glassware that you're having to, you know, think about. It really embodied this spirit of Underwood and what we were trying to talk about, like all in the can. And when did the first one hit the stores? Uh, spring of 2014. Were you not nervous about it at all? You just knew it would take off? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it, even though um, I realize these days that that now was five years ago and then the lifespan of a business is a fair amount of time, you know, at, th- at that point, we were still a, a small winery, a growing winery, and the idea mm-hmm. of taking a risk like this was definitely one that, you know, you're kind of, I think we were always looking over our shoulders, wondering what was going to come along that was going to kind of lop our heads off. And so we managed the launch of it from a standpoint of like, when's the gig going to be up? When when is, when is are the consumers or distributors going to basically laugh at us for, you know, what we were doing? <laughs> and so I think initially in the early days, we kind of managed it for limiting our risk to failure. And in some respects, that maybe actually helped because we didn't have, we couldn't meet the demand. And so there was a shortage of supply. There was a ton of interest and we couldn't get it there. And that probably fostered more interest in it. You know, that classic, like people want something they can't have. And uh, I mean, we, that went as far as actually some people implying that we were playing that game. And I'm like, we're not smart enough to play that game (laughs) or or to be that good. We, We would have loved to have produced more, but we simply just, we couldn't, we weren't organized enough to do it at that point. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me about this is it wasn't just a marketing ploy. You sort of identified where there was real, like, consumer need uh, and pain about the existing kind of wine experience and rooted it in that. And so there were a bunch of kind of inherent upsides to it. So you launch this, and then sales of canned wine grew 43% in the U.S. from June of 2017 to June of 2018. What do you attribute that to? Because so now you're not the only one doing this. It does seem like there is a swing in the market. Yeah, I mean, a big swing. And so uh, I think there are probably a lot of people who are looking at us like, uh, there's no way this is going to fail. Like, you know, we're, we're paying attention to what you're doing, but we're also betting on your demise. And then now I think you're seeing uh, large global wine players entering the can space, which really is helping to also substantiate that as a category. And you have 
organizations like Whole Foods and Kroger uh, who are coming in, and even Walmart recently, coming in and dedicating sections of space to it. And that's a big commitment. Did you see a lift to, because you don't just create canned wine. You ha- you sell bottles as well, and it's beyond just the Underwood brand. You have other uh, brands. Did you see a lift or transfer from the canned wine to bottles and some of your other titles? Certainly. For Underwood bottles, um, that business has continued to grow and continues to be healthy. You know, It's always hard to tell, to, to be able to look at that in isolation without cans, that's impossible to do. So there, we definitely know as a company, yeah. Union Wine Company and its portfolio has benefited from the ongoing conversation that we get to be a part of around cans. Yeah. And so it's raised awareness. And then I think our other brands, probably one of the negatives, honestly, for them, while there's been more awareness for them, we as an organization and, quite, and our distributor partners have been very focused on Underwood. And so anytime we sit down to have mm-hmm. a conversation about Kings Ridge or Alchemist or what's going on with Amity these days, like I, even if the intent behind the meeting was to have more in-depth conversation around, around those brands, somehow it always ends up back at Underwood. Yeah. <laughs> Does it feel like a were? I mean, it, it seems like you started this and then it took off and then you blink and it's how many years later? Oh yeah, for sure. It's uh <laughs> There are so many days where as much as you know, we've been in business now 14 years, and I still feel like we're a startup. Yeah. But when we were in the small office with the small team, we'd get a purchase order and there'd be like high fives around the table or, hey, we just found out that there's going to be an article in Fast Company. Like those, yeah. it, you know, it invoked such excitement. And now when that stuff year after year has continued to kind of come, you realize like you don't celebrate those moments as much anymore. And I think also something I've realized is as that we get bigger and there's more staff and those things continue, we have to be more intentional about some of it to reiterate the culture, reiterate the excitement, uh, celebrate the successes, celebrate the challenges, celebrate even the failures. I think I've learned so much in my career from when we make mistakes. And I mean, I don't know if I say I love making mistakes, but I know every time that we go out and we get something wrong, like it makes us better. Yeah. What are some of those mistakes that you look at over the years you wish you could do over again? Uh, I don't think a lot of people or business owners spend much time talking about that. And it's a nice model for other people to hear and, and know is okay. Yeah. Well, probably one that a lot of us, uh, well, I would imagine a lot of people don't talk about, and it wouldn't surprise me that there's some research out there, especially around entrepreneurs. But I started this business uh, with my wife uh, in 2005, which is my high school sweetheart. Um, And we got divorced two years ago. And so I think, you know, even just personal relationships, you know, become impacted by what's going on in the office. And, and that's not, I don't think that's unique, but I think it took me a long time to realize that between my ex-wife and I have two boys that, yeah, that there was so much going on at work. And I feel so fortunate to love what I do. And that at a certain point becomes hard to step away from the work and you're enjoying the work so much and then there's so much fulfillment coming through. And I think at some point, the therapist that I was working with, she made the points like, so is your 
wife actually your wife or is that your mistress? And the business is is your spouse. Hmm. And it, it stuck with me because I think it was kind of an interesting perspective when you start to think about where you're putting all your energy and, and kind of what you're valuing. And then at the same time, whether you're conscious of it or not, you're kind of devaluing other things that are certainly important in your life. So, you know, I can certainly look yeah. at my marriage has been a victim of probably union success, but also my love of what I do here and and yeah. realizing kind of too late that uh, there was a lot of damage done in that relationship that wasn't going to be able to be fixed. And um, a big part of it was not prioritizing that and kind of super focused on the business and losing sight of, you know, those personal things. I'm sure that's not a, a unique story within the within the entrepreneur space, but I think it's one that I don't hear talked a lot about. Yeah, no, and I think it's an important one because it's it's so hard to separate out those elements, right? This idea of balance is sort of a myth because it's your identity is all of it, mm-hmm. right? Your your love for this work and this passion and your love for your partner, or spouse and it's a bit of a tangle where one begins and one ends because you you know in many ways you're doing one for the other uh, and vice versa. And so it's got to be hard to, when you're in that moment, realize that's what's going on. How do you think that more people can kind of gain the self-awareness of of what's happening in their lives and and if that you know balance or fit is right? It's a tough one because whoever it is in your life, I think it is important to have that person that you can actually have that kind of conversation with uh, separate from a partner. That is a really honest uh, conversation and it has to be the right person who can offer that feedback. So for me, until there was a professional uh, in my life to kind of help work through and talk through some of those things, I don't know who that would have been. I also think it's interesting looking back at my parents who at points were pushing to say, hey, take some time. Like the two of you will come up and take care of the kids. Go go right. on vacation. Go do something just for the two of you. And and in those moments, you're like, ah, oh, I've got so much going on. I just, I can't take that time. I really, you know, appreciate the offer. And I think looking back, like those become certainly question marks now for me of, you know, had you taken the time to have some time away from the business and reconnect and prioritize that? Yeah. Um, I, I think the self-awareness is super hard. And as you said before, balance, I mean, what's balanced for me and balance for you is it could be radically different. And so I'd right. be the last one to try to suggest that there's a formula to balance. I think everyone needs to figure out their own, but within balance, I think is it's priorities. And so you can have, if you're, love what you do and you want to work, you know, crazy hours, still within that, I think you can have priorities that are about family or about your partnership that don't kind of lead down the road, I guess, that that my first marriage went. We'll hear more from Ryan after this quick break. It takes 350 hours and 3,000 rivets to build an Airstream trailer. And like the believers in Bayhive before them, Every good community has a name. Airstream owners are no different. We affectionately call people who own Airstreams streamers. That's Molly Hansen. And I am the chief marketing officer for Airstream. If you love the brand but don't own an Airstream, don't go feeling left out in the woods just yet. You're a part of the community too. And we call them dreamers. When Molly signed on to Airstream, the audience was really more streamers than dreamers. 
how do we get the word out to a larger audience, not just our existing um, consumers? Competition comes from many places, but for Airstream, it just so happens to come from somewhere a little close to home. Our biggest competition is ourself. Our jobs spans from how do we get new people in the door and interested about the brand and create this awareness to how do I make sure the guy who's had it for 40 years that we're still communicating with them, we haven't lost that person, and that we're giving them information that's valid and, and something that they need. Airstream's been around for more than 85 years. And along that journey, generations of owners have passed down their trailers and all the memories that go along with them. Molly couldn't necessarily take her eyes off the rearview mirror because she also needed to see the road ahead of her. So she hits the company's marketing team to HubSpot. Our number one marketing objective is lead generation. HubSpot helped Molly turn streamers into the company's best promoters. You realize you have this amazing community and I have yet to meet someone who owns an Airstream who doesn't want to talk about it or tell you their story. In my past, I'd had to pay people for those stories and the platform that we use is really the conduit to get the stories out. If we didn't have HubSpot, we wouldn't be nearly as efficient. I don't think that we'd have a good understanding of our customers. Instead of the time it would have taken us to try to figure stuff out, that's automatically given to us so we can spend our time in what's next. The Airstream community has fueled the company's recent growth. Five years ago, it was we were a company, approximately 250 employees. Um, and I think today we're over 1,000. Uh, we've added at least 250 to 300,000 square feet of manufacturing space in those last five years. And we're currently busting at the seams. So next year, we'll be building a whole new facility. So if you're looking to pursue that feeling of wanderlust, there's no better way to see the world than from inside an iconic Airstream Silver Bullet trailer. Check out more stories from our customers at HubSpot.com slash customer love. HubSpot. Grow better. So looking at your how you spend your time now and, and your focus now, how are you finding that sort of right balance for you? Because it sounds like you're still incredibly passionate about the work you do and you don't want it to be an either-or situation. What do you do today that, that sets you up better for feeling like you've got the right components in your life? So one of the crazy things, I guess, going through divorce is I had this image of who I was as a father, you know, kind of what I believed I was doing and the level of engagement I had with my kids. And so I have uh, 50, 50 shared custody with my kids and, mm -hmm. or for my kids. And suddenly having them truly 50 50 was a, in part just a wake up call of the amount of energy it takes to keep those guys doing what they need to do, taking care yeah. of them, being there for them. So, right there, like that commitment of saying, I want 50 50 parenting time and I'm going to do that. And then stepping up to it and probably at a moment also having the self-awareness that what I thought I was doing previously was not remotely that. Oh, okay. um, but now it really helps set a new priority. And so that that in, its, in itself just had to reallocate time. I had to find yeah. points where I typically would have been in the office and, hey, I got I to gotta leave and it's going to be a point where I need to make sure I'm uh, available to pick them up from school, to get them to activities, um, just to simply be engaged with them. And so I think that for me was a big uh, shift in how I've spent my time. Mm -hmm. And then I think along the that road too, 
uh, self-care, even though right now um, my workout routine has has failed miserably, I (laughs) really got back into a really great uh, routine of just taking care of myself. And so, you know, what for me, it was hitting the gym, being active there, uh, going out and having a routine of acupuncture and massage. Like those, those are some of the things that I could say, like, became priorities. And also I think became part of me putting a little priority on myself where I'm reallocating time to family. I obviously spent a huge amount of time on business and this was me kind of like trying to reset and identify some priorities for myself that were important. One of the things that's fascinating to me is you would think that being successful would take some pressure off. But it feels like the more you grow as a business, the more successful you are, that pressure does seem to just increase, doesn't it? Yeah, and it it evolves. I mean, I think it's five years ago, if I signed a purchase order for buying a million dollars worth of equipment, I I would have been sweating bullets. It would have taken me months. I would have reanalyzed, analyzed, you know, analysis paralysis. Yeah. Now we make those decisions on a basis that almost is sometimes scary about how casual it can be. And so I think some of that as part of businesses grow, you get accustomed to kind of the new normal. Mm-hmm. But with that, you still, even though, so the numbers themselves might not invoke any more or less stress uh, as they grow, there's still a responsibility behind what all that is. And I think the company's growth, the families that are involved in the company, all those things carry a lot of weight for me. And I I take a lot of responsibility of making sure that at the end of the day, I don't make decisions that somehow imperil each of those families and each of yeah. those individuals who have committed so much energy to uh, the mission of what we set out to do day in and day out. That's an enormous amount of responsibility. Do you Are there things that today you wouldn't sacrifice in order to grow that you might have sacrificed in the past? I don't, I can't undo, you know, the past. Um, so reallocating and prioritizing my family and thinking and being more thoughtful about, can I take five days off or even two days off and have a long weekend away, mm-hmm. um, with my partner and yeah. have that be a way for us to reconnect? Like, is that really going to impact the business and, and the work that I can get done? Yeah. You know, I think there's kind of that awareness that, those sacrifices that you made at that time seem like they were significant and probably now looking back wouldn't be as significant. Yeah. So I think, I think that's the kind of stuff for me anyways, that I I would look at. On the other hand, I think there's some things I probably would have been more aggressive and, you know, I think we make a lot of decisions in business that are instinct and gut and a lot of, you know, it would make all the analysts kind of twitch because they're <laughs> like, hey, the, number, the numbers don't demonstrate that. Why are we making that decision? I think there are some points where we probably were fairly conservative. And while that mitigates risk, I think it actually, it was unfortunate. Like, I, you know, I think yeah. if I should have trusted, trusted your gut. the gut mm-hmm. and if we had gone bigger, where, where would we be today? What opportunities would we be, have already kind of gotten to? But hindsight is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, in many ways, I mean, the the original decision to move to Cairns seems like it was at least in part a gut decision. Very much. And and I, I think we have to look back at that point. Part of what we did was put Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir in Cairns yeah. for a marketing event that we were doing. And I literally thought that we might, if if 
if nobody took it and everyone just wanted to sample wine out of a bottle, yeah. that we might have 60 cases that we'd be going camping with for the next couple of years worth of wine, and, and that would be the <laughs> end of it. Um, so That's not a bad losing the, proposition. Exactly. So you know, I didn't set the bar awfully <laughs> high at that point. I, I just think it's so interesting that, you know, your story and kind of dealing with the various pressures, whether they're pressures you put on yourself um, or pressures from the business or pressures from your personal life. And you're so not alone in that. I mean, there are countless entrepreneurs, uh, business leaders, even people just starting out in business who find themselves in that same situation. What do you think we need to do as an industry, as, as sort of a society to address that more, to, to help remove some of that weight on people that uh, makes them feel like they need to sacrifice so much to grow. Yeah, it's interesting because I think carrying that weight also helps make certain decisions. And yeah. some of it comes back to that self-reflection. And I don't, you know, I don't know from a societal standpoint or an industry standpoint how, how we manage that, but to also recognize like it's just a business at the end of the day. Like yeah. these are these can feel like such huge life-changing decisions, but it is just work. Like it, there's a lot more to life than than just that. And so I think somehow kind of finding that dynamic tension between some of those is also important to you know I think actually I, as I'm thinking about this with Underwood there's this whole idea of like don't take yourself too seriously. And maybe mm-hmm. that actually really fits here is like you know we can look at some of these decisions as being so, so life changing and so important that maybe we are actually putting way more emphasis and pressure in that moment on that. Yeah, it's kind of perfect that it's not neat, right? That that it is kind of a, a not an either or, but a both situation uh, because it does need does take people kind of thinking about it and what it means for themselves and you know, making sure that you have those moments of self-reflection as, as you grow this very meaningful thing of, of a business and you advance your own career in life. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk us through not just the growth of Union, but your own career and uh, your reflections on that. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Appreciate the time and the interest. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown with music from Synchronize. Thanks to Ryan and the crew at Union Wine Company. If you're a fan of the show, I always love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Meg H. Keeney, or you can send us a note to hello at thegrowthshow.com. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you get every new episode this season delivered right there in your feed as soon as they're released. As always, I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and thanks for listening.